Redefined is hosted by me, Zainab Salbi, and brought to you by Find Center, a search engine for your soul. Part library, part temple, Find Center presents a world of wisdom, organized. Check it out today at www.findcenter.com and please subscribe to Redefined for free on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. What's most important about life? What is the essence of life? Is it what we do? How much we earn? How many social media followers we have? Or is it, do we live our lives in kindness to ourselves and to others? Do we live our lives in love to ourselves and to others? In nearly losing my life, I was confronted with these questions, and it led me to the conversations that make up Redefined about how we draw our inner maps and the pursuit of meaningful personal change. My guest this time is a woman who has been relentless in her advocacy for love, Marianne Williamson. Marianne courageously prioritized love as a presidential candidate in the 2020 election. And she has done so in all of her writings, 14 books, including most recently, A Politics of Love, a handbook for a new American revolution. She continues to talk about love with Transform, her Substack newsletter and podcast. You see, love for Marianne is not just a word. It is an action, one that she has embodied in all of her work. From ministering to AIDS patients in Los Angeles to founding Project Angel Food, a meal delivery service for the homebound and chronically ill. Marianne has guts, and she has paid a price for her positions as she's often misunderstood and misrepresented by the mainstream media. Still, Marianne shows up authentically and insists on doing so, soldiering on in the name of compassion and moving towards real transformation in all of our politics and all of our relationships with each other, with ourselves, and with God. In this conversation, you'll hear all about transformative moments in Marianne's life, where her convictions come from, and how they continue to evolve. Join me. Thank you so, so, so much for joining in this uh, conversation. And I want to give you a context for it, because as you know, I am, I'm an activist, I'm a humanitarian, I am a women's rights activist all my life. And yet this podcast is actually not about that, believe it or not. <laughs> it is, it, the idea of it came out of a turning moment in my life that happened two years ago, where I moved from my warrior self into the ICU, into thinking that I'm actually going to take, I'm, I was struggling for my last breath, for just breath. And in that struggle for breath, everything, everything about life changed for me. You had something often referred to as a Eureka experience. You had one event where everything became blazingly clear. That is one model of spiritual transformation. But there's another model, which has to do with slow, steady, 
gradual maturation. One isn't more important or more relevant than the other. And my experiences in life, while they have included some very difficult experiences, have my path has been less about one eureka and more about many situations that taught me sometimes easily and sometimes with great difficulty what is most important. Every moment we're making a choice, whether to show up with our hearts open or to show up with our hearts closed. Now, I think we also realize, most of us, that the reason we don't show up with an open heart sometimes is because of accumulated layers of fear and trauma and abuse that have led us to the conclusion that life is not safe. And if I open my heart in the kind of universal kindness that you're talking about, that I will be in danger. The exact opposite is true, of course. But the thinking that we've all been trained into would have us believe otherwise. It's so true because I am a product of war, a child of war, and I grew up in war and I worked in war, as you know, through my work at uh, Women for Women International. And all my life, I thought I am unsafe, right? And the irony, the irony is, here I am, very vulnerable because of my eureka moment, as you said, and, 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 and my physical health, and, and everyone showed up in my life, right? All family and friends and people I don't know very well and call, everyone showed up. And I remember one moment in which a friend honestly just sent me fruits you know it's like it's not a big deal right just a basket of fruits and I looked and it's like I am safe I am safe and like that it just turned my perception of how I live life from a place of safety but I have to say I lived it from a place of unsafety for a long time but I want to go back to your childhood if you don't mind because I find it so fascinating for Various reasons I will tell you about uh, in the process of the conversation. But in your first book, uh, Return to Love, which I loved, loved, you said, my grandfather was very, uh, was very religious and sometimes I would go to synagogue with him on Saturday mornings. When the ark was open during the service, he would bow and begin to cry. I would cry too. But I don't know whether I was crying out of a budding religious fervor or simply because he was. I'm curious have you know having now had 30 years after that experience or more uh, to reflect on that moment what were the tears about have you figured that out do you know do you have a sense of what were these tears about i still cry easily and i cry religious and spiritual fervor still makes me cry ah before the beauty of the world makes me cry. Witnessing the tragedies of the world makes me cry. I've cried over what's going on in Afghanistan. But I've cried recently over something going on in a personal relationship in my life as well. I don't think whether or not somebody actually sheds tears, though, is necessarily an indicator of the depth of feeling. I think many people feel very deeply that they just aren't crying. But I, I think being part of a, being a sensitive human being, 
at whatever age makes you recognize the deeper meaning of it all, both in terms of the agony and the ecstasy. You know, I'm also someone who will cry at weddings pretty easily, which is kind of difficult because I'm, I've been an officiant at many weddings. So often I have to like make sure I stay buttoned up, but there's something about it just makes me cry. So, you know, I see a newborn baby and I want to cry. You know, I'm just, I'm a crier. You know, I say I have to say I'm a crier too. And in my case, I feel people are judgmental of my crying. They're like sort of un, mm. uncomfortable to what to do with the tears, you know, whether they are, whether tears of awe or they are tears of sadness. Yeah. And they're like uncomfortable. I was like, don't worry. I, I'm okay with my tears. They're a healthy thing to express them. Well, I've gotten to a point in my life where no matter what I do, no matter how I react and no matter what I say, uh, there's probably somebody out there who's going to mock it, criticize it, to write it or whatever. So that's a whole different level of recognition that you can't base your sense of how you're doing on what other people say, particularly today. And I also think it's a function of age. You know, somebody told me that turning 50 is the age past which you don't care what other people think anymore. And I found turning 60 to be the age at which not only do I not care that much how you react to what I say? I have to say it. And I also, you know, somebody said to me the other day, who's your audience, Marianne? I said, people who, who are dreamers and people who are wise. And that's why I often find myself in, in my most intense relationships with people who are young and people who are older. People who are young, who are still young enough to feel it all, and, and dream about what's possible, and people who are old enough to be wise and to not give a, don't give a you know what anymore <laughs> about how other people react. You know, I think that right now, as we speak, is, a, is an intense moment where there is now a collective recognition on a level that I don't think has ever happened in my lifetime of the utter bankruptcy, moral bankruptcy, economic bankruptcy, political bankruptcy, cultural bankruptcy of the entire worldview, the entire establishment worldview that has brought us to where we are. And it turns out that those who have been crying, that those who have been feeling, that those who have been dreaming, that those who have been so sure that the way the world is doing it is in fact not how we're on the earth to do it have been right all along. I feel that strongly. And, and I think that it's our job now to say it as you're doing, as you, you, you are recognizing that what you saw, that it's all about being kind. You didn't, you didn't come out of that experience and say, well, I'm not gonna tell anybody I saw that. You didn't come out of that experience and say, oh, well, let's cover that up. You came out of that experience and said, I'm going to proclaim what I saw. And that's where I think we all are. Not only that we have seen something that runs counter to the thinking of the world, but that we are going to proclaim it because it is the only chance that the world has. And I don't think it's an accident that it's women who are making that claim. 
Oh, I absolutely agree. I, I, I really do believe that this century is going to be the feminine century. And if it doesn't, it, we are all in trouble, basically. Our survival is at stake. Absolutely. So I do believe it's a, and I call it feminine, but it is the feminine rising in all of us. And women have a, a, a unique access to that. But women, but men are also part absolutely. of accessing that feminine uh, power within or knowledge or wisdom within. I, I you know, you talk about you know sort of what you refer to about all of us there's an awakening about the level of economic corruption and social corruption and all of that and as you see around the world and in america in the last few years in the expression of that awakening also there's anger and i i want to quote uh, something that uh, the new york times said that uh, you referred to you said you have less time for those for people who think that anger is a product is a productive emotion anger she said according to the new york Times, is the white sugar of activism it is a good rush but it doesn't provide nourishment. And yet, well, I ask that because we're living in a moment of anger and rage. A lot of people would say we need more rage in the world. A lot of books about the power of rage, women's rage, all of that. And I have to tell you, I mean, as a feminist myself, and I probably in my 20s, not probably, I know in my 20s when someone asked me, because I started Women for Women when I was 23 years old, 29, you know, the woman former was helping thousands of women and I was giving these speeches and all that. And I'm, a, I'm an immigrant here, you know. And someone said, how did you do it? Like, how do you do it? And I was like, I'm pissed off at injustice. So I did lead with anger and even rage until, until I, I it scared me because I realized oh, this could consume me. This, this is dangerous. And so now I, I am still the same activist, have zero desire to lead with anger and rage but yet i feel rage and anger is the is the word of the moment if you may or the emotion of the moment what what do you have to say about that because we are going through that in the midst of that i say what i said in that article anger is a motivation for political activism it's like the white sugar of social change it's it's an adrenaline rush and then you crash gandhi said the end is inherent in the means an angry generation will not produce peace on earth. Who we are is as important as what we do because everything we do is infused with the imprint of the consciousness with which we do it. That's why you see on the internet so much left-wing anger. Left-wing anger is no, more, no less debilitating to the moral fabric of the universe than is right-wing uh, anger. And... What I see in my life, you know, it's interesting because I get that in terms of social activism, where my anger issues still show up is in personal relationships. So, you know, there, there's so much work done. We have so many different aspects of ourselves. Those darker energies show up in different places depending on our childhood, depending on uh, the work we've done. I think each of us has a highly individualized spiritual curriculum this life. We all have the places where we know we're still working it out. And how do you work on it when it comes? Because I can tell you, for me, the, the anger, and for me, honest, to be extremely honest, the anger was not only at injustice. I was working with women survivors of, of wars and seeing rape and at a massive love. So I was angry at men, I have to say, right? So the anger got expressed in my personal relationships 
with all the men in my life, my father, my brothers, my partners, my, I mean, they like, you know, and you know, it's, it's sort of, they saw that entail of it basically, you know, that, that anger at, at my, and obviously I love, love them, but still that's, I would express it to them. And until, I mean, until I, ha now I, I struggle with this, like holding myself from that anger. And I have like some techniques, go for a walk until I calm myself down. So what no are your I... techniques? What are your techniques when you deal with that anger and how do you put a leash on it? That's no joke. My mother used to say, when I was a child, count to 10. You know, we live in a world where it's very difficult to have impulse control, mainly because of social media. It's so easy to text. It's so easy to tweet. It's so easy to write an email. It's so easy to pick up the phone. And so we get a lot of, we get more, it, it, these days we get more social support for being angry than for being forgiven. And sometimes it's the people who have the best intentions and love you the most who will support you in your anger. You have every right to be angry. Well, of course, you have the right to be whatever you want to be. But the issue is, how do, how do the laws of consciousness operate? If you attack someone, you will not get what you want out of this. You might feel better for about 15 minutes of you know, existential surcease of pain, but then it will boomerang. And so getting off that wheel of suffering through radical compassion is the only answer. Now, what's the primary technique for me? is the difference in whether or not I meditated that morning. If I meditated that morning, mornings are so important because that's when it's all, your, your mind is opening to the impressions of a basic worldview. Your nervous system is deeply impacted and everybody's nervous system is shattered by what's happening in this world today. If you're, you've meditated, my experience, it doesn't mean I'll necessarily be uh, an enlightened master today. But it does, I believe, radically decrease the probability that I will really blow it. You know, when you do physical exercise, you are developing your physical muscles so that you can move and powerfully react in the world. When you do spiritual exercise, you're, you're honing your spiritual muscles to have the power of stillness and non-reactivity. The power to be non-reactive is one of the greatest powers. Now, you talked about your family. You made some a couple of references to your family, and I want to go back to it because as an immigrant myself, you know, I'm, I'm always curious about uh, immigrants in America, and you are the daughter of a father who was an immigration lawyer. Uh, and and I'm really fascinated by your father. I have to say, I mean, he took you to. You would have loved my father. <laughs> he took you to Vietnam in 1965. It was like, wow. I mean, I'm just so curious. Were you alone in that trip? You and him, or your siblings no, came? My mother, my father, my brother, my sister. I grew up a very interesting family. <laughs> so my father would be in Saigon. He'd say, "What are these kids?" And we'd say bullet holes daddy damn right who put those bullet holes there uh the u.s government daddy damn right god damn u.s government Understood. say it after me kids war machine and he'd go on and on and on and then my mother in effect would say well that was great can we go to paris now sam can we go to paris on the way home that's so, hilarious okay that's your mother wants to go to paris go to paris on the way home but don't forget kids Dollar war machine, a CIA, Joe Kennedy, and I don't want you to ever forget. <laughs> and my mother, and my mother would just get the, we get the, 
tickets and she'd make dinner nicely and she'd make sure that, you know, your hair was brushed while you were tearing down the U.S. war machine. <laughs> that is really, really cool and hilarious and funny. <laughs> Yeah. How how yeah. were the dinner conversations? I mean, when he comes oh, from oh, well, like, that was it was a dinner. It was a dinner conversation that caused the trip to Vietnam. I came home and I said at dinner, my social studies teacher said today that if we don't fight in Vietnam, that we will be fighting in the on the shores of Hawaii because that was called the domino effect. That's how the Vietnam War was sold to people, that we had to stop the communists in Southeast Asia or we would be fighting on the shores of Hawaii. When I said that, my father jumped up. That's it. Damn it. Sophie-Ann, we're going to Saigon. Get the visas. And my mother would say, oh, Sam. Oh, Sam. And then and she would say, what will these children turn out like? And I said to her many years later, see, mommy used to say that if we listen to daddy who knew how we would turn out? And she said, yeah. Um, but she got the visas and packed the bags and in a very traditional kind of wifely way. And for all I know, I was wearing white gloves when we landed in Saigon. Amazing. Amazing. You know what I noticed when like now in this conversation and, and, in, and in reading and, and hearing other interviews, you're really funny. I don't know if anybody yeah. talk about your sense of humor. You're yeah. really funny. No, people, who, people who know me from my lectures. Uh, yeah. Okay, so it's a known fact. Okay, because I was like, I couldn't, I was like, why is no one talking about her sense of humor? Because um, so many of the people who are talking about me don't know me and know a stereotype and an image. Does that does that hurt you? I mean, especially as you went through the presidential well, election, does that hurt you know, like well, all yeah. the misunderstanding and the judgment of you? Like an acid bath. You wake up every morning, every morning to see articles, uh, to see um, things on computer, on television. You can't turn on television that somebody's not. And a lot of it, Zena, was from women. You know, there's a whole mean girl set out there. And a lot of them are the ones who claim to be the most feminist, to, to have the most compassion for other women. But I came out of that experience knowing, you know, there's an old cliche, you get bitter or you get better. And I knew that I had a lot of, you were talking about the situation that you went through with your near-death experience and how it took you a year or a year and a half to heal. And I had to take a year to clear. If, if I didn't allow the emotions that would come from that, it could have really twisted my personality bitterness, defensiveness, chip on my shoulder. But at the same time, I didn't want to be someone who wasn't going to tell the truth about what I saw. I don't know if I'm 100% there, but I'm, I'm certainly on the, on the right path. And I have only in the last six months or so realized in a way that I can't quite articulate. And I said this recently to a friend of mine who lost a political campaign very unfairly. She was done dirty. She was done wrong. And I did share with her, the day will come when you will see the value of having been through this. I can't quite put my finger on why. You know, I think the prayer for every situation is, dear God, somehow may my suffering not have been in vain. May this in some way make me a better person. And I reminded my friend, that's something that has meant a lot to me. 
So I think anytime you're hurt, you also, in the vast majority of cases, not all the cases, not all the cases, obviously, but in the vast majority of things we experience, even if other people did us wrong, what part did we play? How did we make it easy for them? What was our own participation? How do we sabotage ourselves? How did we undermine ourselves? So there's, there's value in every lesson. And can you share one lesson that you learned from that, that came from that pain? Yeah. Well, one interesting one, I think one of the things that I, in the Course in Miracles, it says in my defenselessness, no, yeah, in my defenselessness, my safety lies. So much of my spiritual work in my life, for all the reasons that you and I have talked about today, has been becoming less tough. When it came to running for president, I needed to be tougher. When I was ambushed by Anderson Cooper on TV, I realized what he was doing. And the thought that came into my head was in my defenselessness, my safety lies. Oh, I should have come right back at him. I had the statistics. I, had, I could have said a few things. And I didn't. And somebody said to me later, if you can't take on Anderson Cooper, how do you expect people to think you could take on Xi or Putin? So I, I learned, and this goes back to what you and I were talking, the fact that we're being loving or even kind does not necessarily mean we're being silent. And I also, when lies were said, and I've seen, I see what the system does to get someone out of the conversation if it wants them out of the conversation. I've been told, ill-advised, although it's my responsibility for not overriding this, don't speak to it because that brings attention to it. Well, if you're running for president, the attention is there. Every day a lie was told about me in an article or on television. I should have gotten on Facebook Live and said, let me tell you, let me read this to you. Let me, let me tell you what's really going on. So I learned that it's, that you don't sacrifice. You know, there's, there's an old saying, uh, honesty without compassion is brutality. I get that. But I also get that compassion without honesty leads to further problems. Did some of the, you're talking about some of the advice of like, do not answer the attacks or all the mis, uh, all the lies. Did you, did you have an instinct about, did you follow your instinct about it? Or did you follow the advice of professionals, of others, you know? Uh, and how did you, how, how did that play, your instinct uh, play in that? Well, first of all, I didn't expect it. I, I naively expected to be criticized for my policies or for something that was true, not for this narrative made up that was completely counter to my 37-year career. So I think I was so hurt. And I secondly was hurt by the people who knew better and did not speak up. You know, I saw one article by a fellow writer. He said, you know, I've worked with her. She's not nutty. <laughs> but I feel that a lot of people um, put their finger in the wind. Well, if they're saying she's crazy and I take up for her, they're going to say I'm crazy. And I, that's where I've become deeply sensitive to issues of loyalty, particularly to other women. Because to, to be a truth teller, 
you're not always going to be popular. But a meaningful life is not a popularity contest. And if you are loyal towards someone who the world is into attacking at the moment, you might not be popular. And especially these days where everybody is in such a reactive mode, somebody says one thing wrong and the mob is after them. And sometimes it's the people who are standing for righteousness today aren't standing for right or left. They're just saying, let's give people the benefit of the doubt. Let's give people the opportunity to change. Let's give people the opportunity to express what they want. You know, so we're living in a very mean-spirited time. We're living in a jacuzzi moment. Anybody can accuse anybody of anything. So I understand why it's very tempting to just say, I'm out. I'm going to go live in this bubble of protection. But given what's happening in the world today, how could any of us die happy if we knew we sat out ever to change things before it's too late? Of all the lies, which one hurt you the most? Well, the, the idea that I told AIDS patients not to take their medicine. that I told AIDS patients that they got it because they didn't love enough. Mm. That they could just pray it away and mm. don't take your medicine. Mm. Mm. That one hurt the most because it's the most deeply untrue yeah. and so counter, so yeah. counter to what yeah. we're and, and you were in service, actually. You were in service. You mentioned women and... Interestingly enough, you have a book for women, A Woman's Worth. In it, you wrote, when I told girlfriends I was writing a book about women, most of them said something like this. For us, women who have been to hell and back, how strange that this should be the, the uh, uh, that we should belong to this club, you know, women who have been through hell and back. And, and my question here, is there a moment when you first came to grips with your worth as a woman? And what sort of hell have you yourself overcome that feels gender specific? Well, I grew up in that wave of feminism in the 1970s where You know, we were all going to consciousness raising groups and bowing at the feet of Gloria Steinem, which she deserved, you know, well-deserved respect, admiration, and love. So I've always identified with the feminist struggle. That was nothing new for me. That book, A Woman's Worth, was written when I was 40. It was, okay, I'm 40, and this is what I've learned. But it's interesting because that book kind of has a cult following now among women in their early 20s. So what in my generation was this like, oh, my God, I'm 40 now, and I see this. Women now are like, oh, my God, I'm 20 now, and I see this. Excellent. It's amazing, actually. Excellent. Excellent. Yeah, women are putting women are putting things together now at a much younger age than we did. But that's true of every generation. You stand on the shoulders of the one before you. Absolutely. I mean, that's how it works. And we pass on the information to others, mm-hmm. you know? Yeah. Absolutely. Was there a moment that you realized your worth as a woman and owned your voice as a woman? Well, I, my, my 
path has almost been the opposite. Uh, my path has been Jung's concept of the father's daughter. I was raised in a generation where fathers with the best of intent were slapping their daughters on the back. I'm so proud of you for this achievement or that, which led me to believe that if I achieved enough, I would be loved. And so I internalized what I think was a kind of faux strain of feminism, where I was tempted to suppress the feminine in the name of feminism. And so the pain I experienced from this did not have to do with being rejected publicly, not until my presidential campaign. Because in my career as a spiritual teacher, it's a, it's a, it's a comfortable fit and I never felt that I was less embraced because I was a woman during the presidential campaign on such a level. In my personal life, my problem was that I unconsciously I didn't know that the feminine is loved for who we are, not for what we do. So in my relationships with men, I paid the price of being too active, too masculine really, thinking that that would make me loved and learning very painfully that that's sometimes what deflects it. Thank you. Thank you for that. I actually, I want to talk about love because you ultimately stand for love. I mean, if I am to summarize, you know, well, for not me. not 24 seven, but I try. <laughs> no, but you stand for the power of love, you know. I do. Um, and, and, <laughs> Even and, if I'm not expressing it. <laughs> and yet it seems that your love, of course, comes from different perspective. You know, there's romantic love and there's, you know, political love and there's all kinds of colleagues love and there's love to kids. Uh, what's the question? I wonder what has been the most profound experiences that taught you about the power of love. Well, I have a daughter and I don't think anything matches the kind of love that you feel for a child. But also my personal relationships, romantic relationships, intimate relationships have proven to me how important that fuel can be that when you wake up happy in the morning, you can do so much more that day. That's so true. And and so many of us career women, driven women, we talk about our career and ambitions and all of that and we sacrifice that's still that you're need. About 35. Yeah. <laughs> that way we still we sacrifice the need for like, you know, the softness and the romantic love and the care and the love in our intimate lives. And, you know, it took me a long journey to understand that this is important and needed. Yeah. And it seems that you it's the same. Yeah, because I was a generation that was almost made to feel guilty for feeling that way. That's what I meant by faux feminism, a, a, a strain of faux feminism where that, that part of me, that drive, that yearning, that desire was, I, I internalized the idea, the very wrong false idea that that's somehow less than. And that's another thing I see in many young women that they don't have that delusion. My daughter certainly didn't, uh, didn't have that. She's, she wants the PhD and the husband. Good for her. Mm. Good for mm. her. I want to go back to the HIV uh, p uh, 
patients that you cared for um, in, a, in a time where no one wanted to talk about them or touch them or anything like that. What did they, you, you met with people who are in a very vulnerable moment in their lives, in a very raw, very intimate space, that, that moments of life and death, you know. Um, and then in your foundation, you helped people in that space. What have you learned? What have the, you know, do you have an example where they just taught you about the essence of life as they, as they were dealing with death? As you yourself said, mm. when you're about to die, or you think you're about to die, it all becomes so clear. I've never known so much love. I've never experienced so much communal love as I did around a community of sufferers in Los Angeles and also New York, who knew that the great probability was that their days were numbered, but who were there for each other and were certainly there for me as I sought to be there for them. It was exactly what you said. It was, we all got, all we have here is to be kind to each other. That's all we can do is that I can't promise that you won't die from this, but I can promise you won't die alone. And nobody was saying, don't take medicine. First of all, there wasn't any medicine at that particular point. We were all praying for the medicine and, and, and Western medicine was trying. It wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like doctors weren't trying. Doctors were trying. I understand you lost your sister as well. How has that uh, death Well, that was you? at that same time. My sister died of breast cancer in 19... 89. So my initial work wanting to start a center to be there for people with life challenging illnesses did not specifically come out of the fact that so many AIDS patients were at my lectures. It came from my personal experience of my sister's sickness as well. However, when we did our first fundraiser and I saw all these men and it wasn't just men. I mean, people, the whole community in Los Angeles, you know, so many people who contracted that virus were actors, directors, producers. Hollywood was saturated uh, with the disease because there were so many talented gay men, particularly, are part of the creative communities in the United States and everywhere for that matter. And I remember that first fundraiser all these men in tuxedos, many of them covered by sarcosis. I saw that when I put the word out to do this, that's who had responded in my lectures and I knew, wow, this belongs to them, this project. Not that it wasn't open to other people who were suffering from whatever they were suffering from. You know, something that my mother told me that I think you'll find interesting at that time. I was talking to, that happened at that time, I was talking to my mother about the idea of starting this center that we were going to start to give free non-medical support services to people with life-challenging illnesses. And I was telling my mother that I, I didn't know whether or not I wanted to do this. And she said, well, what part of you wouldn't want to do this? And I said, well, you know, mommy, if I take this on, I'm going to have to be in Los Angeles for at least five years. I mean, it would... It, it, it would be wrong for me to leave because if I started it, you know, people will need me. And she said, I feel sorry for your generation that you're so afraid of being needed. Wow. Mm -hmm. Wow. 
Your mom was wise. I like asking people things their mama told them. Yeah. I know. She told me, you know, sometimes it takes years to look back at what your mother said and go, oh my gosh, my mother was right. Sometimes I think she was right for some wrong reasons, you know, given the cultural milieus, sex and sexuality and stuff. She did turn out to be right. <laughs> Not for quite the reasons that, that you know. What did she say about that? I'm so curious. Well, you know, my generation was um, definitely we initiated, you know, the whole casual sex, sexual revolution. And my mother's very traditional admonition against sex, well, for her, it's sex that wasn't in marriage. I came around to a lot of what my mother said, not in terms of merit necessarily, but in terms of commitment, in terms of a sacred container, in terms of not casual. Like I, I, I got there. Yeah. yeah. Well, probably, probably a little <laughs> late actually. But I did. It's so interesting. My mom, I grew up a Muslim in Iraq, a traditional, you know, society. And, you know, you're not supposed to have sex whatsoever, ex except for marriage, uh, during marriage. I mean, so your mom would approve of that, you know. And my mom told me, she said, sex is beautiful, honey. It is to be enjoyed. It is part of the beauty of life. And it, if it doesn't feel joyful and beautiful, you should never allow it. And so I always grew up in a household where I knew, no, not only, my siblings knew where my parents having sex, you know, just because they closed the door in the middle of the afternoon. They and then it. I would hear the little click it. on the door. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. uh, I was raised the same way. <laughs> Absolutely the same. And then when they got out, I would ask them, so how was it? Was it good? And my mom's like, we didn't go that far. We just mom, looked at each other. <laughs> my mom would tell me, honey, it was really good. And my dad would just be uncomfortable with it. But I love. Oh, wow, that's really cute. I love households that talk about sex in a, in a, in a beautiful way, because I think it's whatever the message is, but to talk about it rather than be ashamed. Well, there were times when my daughter, I would go on and on with my daughter and she'd go, mom, mom. Like she didn't, she, she stopped. She didn't want to have as much conversation about her sex life with her mother. That was, you know, I, she didn't, she didn't want to go there. I respect that. So here we are. We talked about sex, family, politics, women. I have some rapid questions to ask you about things that impacted you the most. But before I go there, if I am um, to say, have you like, because it's a year after the election, almost a year, right? Yeah. How are you now? And who is Marianne Williamson now? Like, who are you now? And are you going to, do you think you're going to run again for any other election, perhaps? I will run for office again if every part of me says yes, because every part of me said to do it before. I think the thing to avoid will be any part of me that wants to do it only out of this kind of ego based. I want to do it right the way I did it wrong. You know what I'm saying? Running for president was equal parts exhilarating and brutal. So um, if I, there are many ways to serve besides running for office. On the other hand, it's a very important way to serve. We'll see. Today, I, I, I do understand the Sermon on the Mount, be not anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. I have plenty to do right now. 
And I think the more you live seeking to inhabit the present as best you can, the more the future will take care of itself. That's so beautiful. It's so beautiful. And I really, I have to say, admire your courage. Because a lot of us separate between our political brain and our heart's uh, language, as I call it, you know, and rarely I, I can talk about myself. I separated my own love for God for a long time because I was so embarrassed to talk about it, you know, and I really admire, you know, because here you are standing for very clear political uh, values and and conducting it and carrying conveying it with very clear uh, presence of love also and and that combination takes and with vulnerability and authenticity and that combination is very courageous one a very thank courageous you. one so thank you no thank you for being just for being who you are thank you now before we go I do have rapid questions for you are there any songs that make you feel empowered and brave that you always go to miracles by Jefferson Starship all right. Is there a prayer, a poem, a piece of art that lifts your spirits? Gosh, so many. Art, great art. You know, John Lennon was once asked, what kind of music do you like? He said, great music, good music. Uh, you know, I'm, on my Substack, I'm, I'm using the sort of visual strategy is painting. So I'm spending a lot of time right now on the internet, just looking at great paintings. Uh, only Matisse comes to mind. Evermook comes to mind. Picasso comes to mind. Beautiful. How about movies that you go for either Good Cry or Renew Your Spirit or like the movie that you always watch? The one, well, there are two things. The one that blew my mind was The Mission. Oh, love it. Yeah, The Mission just says it all, doesn't it? Oh my says gosh. And the one that's my sort of romantic favorite is a movie made by Henry Jackham called Deja Vu several years ago. Are there mentors or teachers who have inspired you? I'm sure there are lots, but ones oh, that you can share. Absolutely. Jesus, Buddha, Moses, Uber, Tillich. The book I'm writing right now is about Jesus. Oh. Uh, the publisher called me and said, we need somebody to write a book about Jesus for non-Christians. I said, I'm your girl. Is there a book, your favorite book that you go to for solace or strength? Letters to a Young Poet by Roka. I, uh, Letters to a Young Poet always just seems to me to have infinite, infinite wisdom. And I, I'm into really reading all the other, the old ones again. Like, you know what I'm reading right now again? I'm reading yeah. Anna Karenina again. I love it. I know. I'm reading a lot of old classics that I, you read them very differently at a later time in your life. So true. So true. Mm -hmm. I must tell you, A Letter to a Young Poet is by my nightstand. I, I look to uh, different pages between now and then. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Beautiful. And of course, Jane Austen never gets old. Absolutely. It's an honor, honor to be in conversation with you. And I truly do look forward to staying in touch. Thank you very, very much. Absolutely. All my best. Oh, my, my best to you. Thank you. Thank you. That was Marianne Williamson. To subscribe to her newsletter, Transform, please visit marianewilliamson.substack.com.
And for transcripts and other resources from this episode, please go to www.findcenter.com redefined. You can follow Find Center on Instagram at find underscore center. You can follow me at Zainab Salbi, and you can email me questions about this podcast and your own transformative moments at redefined at findcenter.com. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back next week for another conversation about life's turning points and lessons learned. My guest will be Movement Genius founder, Alison Stoner. Redefined is produced by me, Zainab Selby, along with Rob Carso, Casey Khan, and Howie Khan at Freetime Media. Our music is by John Palmer. Special thanks to Lauren Salsky, Neil Goldman, Jen Tardif, Elijah Townsend, Amanda Graber, Carolyn Pincus, and Shira Johnson. Looking forward to seeing you next time. <laughs>